Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru, John Spear. Each and every episode of the podcast, we are focusing on some content and information that's going to help you through your medical device journey. Today, the, the topic is an important one. It's, it's about the quality management system. Yeah, it's something that you're going to have to eat, breathe, live. It's something that you're going to have to put in place, manage effectively, and constantly approve and evaluate in order to continue to design, manufacture, and, and sell medical devices. My guest today, David Amore. David is from Medgineering in myquickconsult.com. David and I talk about the important aspects of a quality management system. It's, it's definitely applicable to any med device company for sure. But David and I get into some finer points and details on things that are especially geared towards startups. You know, a startup, you've got a lot on your plate for sure. And a quality system may not be one of them, but I tell you, it needs to be one of them. And David and I give you a few key tips and pointers for how you can manage your quality system while focusing on the design and development of your new medical device. So be sure to check in and listen to David and I talk about quality management system on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru. And today, you are listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Folks, I have another great guest on our show today. We have David Amore. David David is a medtech biotech consultant and mobile health entrepreneur who founded Medgineering, a company focused on remote compliance, regulatory, and quality systems consulting for larger companies and startups alike. David is a graduate of the prestigious Innovation Fellows Program at the University of Minnesota's Medical Device Center and was named a top 40 under 40 medical device innovator in 2012 and a 35 under 35 entrepreneur in 2015 by the Minnesota Business Magazine. Recently, David co-founded and helped launch Remind Technologies, a Texas-based mobile health company developing smartphone-based remote medication management system which you can find at remind-technologies.com. He is also a co-inventor on several issued utility patents and co-pioneered a disruptive e-consulting platform for the medical and pharma industries called Quick Consult. We're going to talk a little bit about that here in a moment as well, but that's myquickconsult.com. Lastly, David also serves as an adjunct professor at St. Cloud State University in Maple Grove, Minnesota, where he teaches courses on quality, risk management, and design control. The current focal points of his consulting practice are specializing in quality management systems, risk management, design controls, combination products, and mHealth. And a little bit about David's company, Medgineering. Medgineering is a quality and regulatory consulting firm based in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. Medgineering uses a remote model to save clients time, money, and procurement. Uh, visit Medgineering.com, and it's just like it sounds, folks, and try out the new online platform at MyQuickConsult.com. So, David, quite impressive, and welcome to the show today. 
Greetings, John. Thanks for uh, having me on. This has been a, a very great uh, opportunity here with you guys. David, uh, you and I, were we found each other, I think, through uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. or we, You were a fan of some of my writing, and uh, yeah. <laughs> it turns out I was a fan of some of yours as well. So. And I, I think some of the pieces that uh, that each of us, you know, we can. I found myself when I read one of your your recent posts about quality systems for startups. I found myself saying yes, 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 and and uh, we connected and we talked, and it was uh, it was eerily similar how how much our minds were alike as far as what startups should do. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, you know we've been recommending as part of our startup coalition. You know, we're working with a lot of startups in the Twin Cities on the West Coast. Uh, we've very familiar with uh, Greenlight.guru and, and really have used that as an example of a really great way of implementing a lean QMS. So I think it fits right in line with what we're going to be talking about today. Yes. I, I mean, the, the whole idea behind Greenlight.guru started from an idea that I had many years ago. I mean, for the past nine or so years, I've been working with startups. And startups have a very, well, many of them share several common issues. And it all seems to boil down to uh, resources, both in the form of people and capital, and the knowledge and expertise necessary to comply with FDA and other regulations in order to bring that new product to market. Exactly. I think I think the key thing with quality systems that that you know there's two two ways of looking at it, right? So a lot of startups that I work with, it's either one of two things: a they don't they don't even know what a quality system is, right? So they have this this napkin sketch that they want to take to market and. They think that the the battle's done once they get to market, and when they realize that you know what you actually take to market is what's going to be sold and commercialized and and sold to customers, and you have to have a quality management system in place. You know that's when the, the freakout mode occurs a little bit. But I think the opposite end of the spectrum is is folks that really overestimate the amount or the the depth and robustness of a quality system that's necessary for a startup. I think that the key there is. Not every company is Medtronic, and nor does nor right. does the FDA or any notified body in Europe really require expect that a startup that is pre-revenue really has a, a quality system in place that is comprised of a billion documents, right? So I think that's one of the the other factors in this quality system world. It's understanding where you really fit uh, in the FDA and the regulators' eyes, and what you have to do to to meet those requirements. Right. I'll share a short story about my my first, I guess, consulting experience when I started mm-hmm. my consulting practice many years ago. I was working for a startup, and and the key term you really covered it very well, explaining it very well. But the key term I've always used is you want your quality system to be right sized. Exactly. Right. But this short story, it, it was a startup pre-revenue. They had some funding, mostly in the form of grants, but you know, let's just say they were operating on mostly a, sh- a shoestring budget and. They asked me to come in and assist with some some quality system initiatives, and a lot of the foundation for this quality system had been laid by by a consultant before me. And the the, the quality system was beautiful. I mean, it was very thorough, very complete. The trouble is, the company wasn't following it because it was too too complex. overly burdensome. Yeah, too complex. Yeah. No, that, that's a great story. I mean, that that highlights the problem, right? So I think you often have this one size fits all approach where. You know, a lot of folks like to to copy. You know, a lot of these people in startups are are ex employees at different organizations, so they think, oh, I worked at you know Boston Scientific, so let's uh, let's take what we did there and and really fit it into this company. And, and you're absolutely right. By the time you know it, you know you're looking at processes that become too expensive or or too burdensome for companies. And and look, let's be honest, John. I think it's just as important that companies get to market as having a a, a robust quality management system in place. 
if you break the bank trying to get to market because you're spending all this time and effort and money on your quality system and you can't get to market, patients are ultimately impacted. They're not going to receive the therapies that you set out to give them. So it really is kind of a, a fine line between knowing exactly what you need to know in order to, to actually have a, a quality system that meets the requirements and also makes sense. So as an example, one of the things that you know, I usually recommend to people is there's one common question. It's, well, you know, what, what is enough, right? So what are the really big quality system elements that need to be in place? And I think an easy answer to that is, well, let's just see what the FDA says. Right. The FDA literally publish, publishes the quality system inspection technique, otherwise known as QCIT amongst ourselves, that really tells you this is basically a training manual for their inspectors that are reviewing quality systems. And it really identifies four main key areas, four to five, but I'm going to focus on four, that are extremely critical for companies. So management controls, right? It makes sense. You have to ensure that your management is aware of what's going on in your company, that they have significant control over resources, that resources are qualified. That's a very, very big key. So that's one of them. Second one of them is design controls. And I think you know we, we've shared a lot of articles on design controls on LinkedIn and everything because it really is critical, right? Complying with 820.30 is is the key to developing a product, which is frankly the primary focus of these fir- of these companies getting their first products to market. Kappa, right? Kappa is the window into is the agency's window into your company. So that's the the third really big area of, and focal point, right? Having a robust Kappa system that's going to you know correct and prevent any form of nonconformances, discrepancies, and, and product issues. That's really key. And the last one is the same thing as design control. Once you're actually in post production, it's Controlling your process, so production right. and process controls. Right. It makes sense. You, you got to control who your management is, how you're designing product, how you're controlling processes to build that product, and then at the end of it, if any of that goes wrong, how you're controlling it through capital. So I think that's kind of the, you know, the way that I would recommend approaching that. Yeah, and and it's and it sounds a little trite and maybe trivial, but it's just if you follow uh, the regulations, it's bl- basic blocking and tackling. It's you got to just think about it logically. So here's one of the you know the things that that I've always recommended to this early stage or pre-revenue startup. You know, certainly that Kappa piece is important in a post-production world or you know go-to-market world, and you know as you gear up towards you know pilot manufacturing and things along those lines. And of course, management responsibility is important. But when you're still in just the product development process. You haven't even submitted your 510K. I mean, mm-hmm. Kappa, I mean, really, can you do much with Kappa at that point? Right, right. No, and that's, a, that's actually a really good point, uh, John. I think, I think it is really critical to distinguish between kind of pre-market and then post-market. When you're doing your 510K, you're really trying to demonstrate safety and efficacy, right, against a predicate. Right. So when you're doing a, an analysis of technological characteristics, do you need to have a Kappa process in place? Probably not. At this point, this is all pre you know, during development, you have to be flexible, you have to be lean, you shouldn't be worrying about nonconformances because let's be frank, there are no nonconformances, you don't have a product at the door yet. Right. So I think that's the, that's the really, you know, that's a very good point. I think, you know, the distinction is important, like you said, to make it between how to get to market and then after you launch, what you have to implement. And even that there's a period, you know, after post-production when you get to market to really keep it lean before you start right. building up your volumes, before you build, start building up your sales and you know, there's you could probably create a mathematical equation on how robust does my quality system need to be, and that's a variety of factors, as you know. It's the risk of the product, right? So, a toothbrush manufacturer's quality system is probably going to be a lot more lean than a brand new uh, PMA device uh, that's a cardiac pacemaker, right? So, I think that that comes into play. Your quality system probably needs to be more robust 
uh, on the cardiac pacemaker side. Product yeah, risk, you know, yeah, those are important. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's funny, though, but that, uh, you know, you, you see, you and I, you get to see it from the outside looking in sometimes, and, and we can always quickly identify, well, this should be done, this should be done, and that should be done. And I can, I can imagine from a startup's perspective, it can be a little overwhelming at times because they have, if they've never been through the medical device product development process before or haven't implemented a quality system, when, when you or I are talking to them and advising them, saying, hey, here's what you need to do from a quality system standpoint, I can imagine it's really difficult to understand the vision that you and I are, are trying to convey to them. You know, this is what you do first, and this is the next pile, and then this, here's your last pile. I can imagine that that could be overwhelming. Absolutely. And I think the key there is really starting with the regs, right? So I think compliance is one thing, but I think adequacy of compliance is a secondary thing. So you know, the, if you look at the 820 regulations, if you look at the quality system regulations, you could probably read through it in about 10 minutes. It's not very substantial. Right. It's really lean, just kind of makes some key points. It's really the interpretation of those regulations that becomes critical. So, you know, hiring a consultant or having somebody internal on the team that can not only regurgitate the regulations, but really give you some practical implementation advice is really critical so that you avoid issues like you were saying. I mean, that's kind of the, the key thing, I think, there. Yeah, I think that's the difference maker is, you know, I can give you a quality system right now that meets all the regulations. Right. And so what? I mean, it's not about just having the quality system at the end of the day. It's about having the documentation, the records, and, and actually putting it to practice and, and to use. And then as you, you mentioned a few moments ago, constantly being identifying opportunities for improvement and tweaking and modifying and adjusting that, that quality management system to align with your particular business needs. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I think a good example of you know what happens when you don't maintain a robust quality system is what happened with Theranos. I mean, if you look at the Theranos case, there's a lot of talk about the mislabeling and and all of that jazz, which is which is just fine and dandy. But if you look at the 43s, the real keys there are really the the lack of a proper design controls process. Right. And I'm a big fan of the Theranos company. I, I'm a huge proponent of them. I love the company. I love what they're doing. But if you look at their 43s, it truly does tell you how critical all of these different pieces of the quality system are. So if you're a startup out there and you say, nah, we, you know, we, we could probably get away with you know, having a quality system in place. If your company scales to a Theranos-like level where they have a, what, a multi-billion dollar market cap already, <laughs> yeah, right. you, better expect, you, know, you better expect some challenges uh, from regulators on the robustness of your quality system. So just keep that in mind. Well, and I think here's the other interesting note. Every, every startup I talk to, they all want to be hundreds of millions of dollars or, or bigger in, in <laughs> yeah. revenue. And, and I think the key take home there is great. I, I hope you're successful and able to do that. And keep in mind, the bigger your company gets, the, the more scrutiny you're going to get from FDA and the higher that expectation level of expectation is from FDA that your quality system is thorough, robust, and complete. And, and I think that the time to build that is when you're small. When you build that foundation, you lay the groundwork, for your quality system, and, and then just continue to build and scale, and as as I said a moment ago, right size your your quality management system to 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 align with this type of company you are at that moment in time. No, that that's perfectly stated. I mean, you you brought up the key point there, which is in the point of time that you are in, right? So, I mean, the FDA, you know, one of the articles I wrote on on how to implement a quality system, I referenced this FDA guidance. It's withdrawn now. But it's not withdrawn because it's not applicable anymore. It's just withdrawn for other reasons. But one of the things that I thought was very interesting is 
you know, if you're ever questioning whether or not a startup needs a quality system that's Medtronic sized, take a look at that, you know, that, that guidance. It basically says that FD recognizes that a small manufacturer may not need the same amount of documentation that a large manufacturer does in order to achieve a state of control and that some of the records maintained to fulfill the GMP requirements for written procedures may not be as long as complex for a small manufacturer. That's verbatim. That's literally what regulators are saying. So this isn't David and John saying, hey, recognize where you're at and scale accordingly. This is the regulators that are going to be sending out great, fantastic, phenomenal inspectors to review your company's stuff. So that just gives you an example of, of the fact that there is uh, an understanding from, from regulators. And this, this applies to, to notified bodies, too, that your company your company's quality system should be as complex as your company, frankly. Right, right, right. So yeah, I was I was just going to make that that point, and I'm glad you you mentioned that. You know, we've we've obviously been speaking somewhat FDA centric today, but everything that we're talking about applies whether you're in a, in a FDA US eight, FDA CFR eight twenty yeah. environment or in an ISO thirteen forty five environment. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've just recently, for example, uh, I was in an audit with a a stage two audit with one of my startup clients and. You know, we had this conversation, and I think they're, one of the uh, auditors from, uh, from BSI, a notified body in Europe, was saying, you know, one of the things we, we wish we can tell startups is, and I thought this was very interesting and very apropos, is we care more that you're following your procedures and not that your procedures are the best procedures in the world. I think that's really, you know, resonates with me and really kind of, frankly, makes sense because they want to see a working quality system that you've addressed for 1345 requirements required by the directives, right? So 9342 EC for medical device directives. If you go for, you know, if you're looking at using Annex 2, which is your quality system demonstration, as long as you can demonstrate that you meet those requirements in some sort of way as a startup, you're in good shape. So, right. you know, their, their comment was really well received. As long as you have a procedure in place and you follow that procedure, again, follow that procedure, that's better than having these, like you said, John, beautiful, complex, 30-page, you know, or 30,000 documents worth of quality <laughs> yeah. system that ultimately doesn't get followed. So Yeah. I, uh, I spoke to somebody recently, startup, and bounce a couple of things off you and get your, your insights here. But, uh, and I'll start with this story and then let you, you chime in. But this guy calls me, and they're a startup. And they had a, they've already got their 510K clearance. And I don't know what the trigger was for this phone call, but the guy suddenly realized that he needed a quality system, that he needed design controls. He hadn't documented any design control activities, that he needed to establish his risk management documentation. And that's not a one-off incident. I've had numerous calls, same sort of thing, in the past six months. So I guess it's I'm confused a little because to me you can't put together a 510k unless you have design controls and to me you can't do design controls unless you've defined a procedure to do that. But you know again I'm I've been in this 17 years so so uh, you know sometimes I can't see the forest for the trees. But I'm just curious what your take is on that that type of scenario. You know it's it's really funny you asked. I had a, a very good friend of mine is uh, an ex FDA reviewer and we had this conversation because you know I, I agree with you 100. percent So my perspective is the same. It's, you know, you're developing essentially, although it's not a, a formal requirement in the 510K that says, hey, you need to submit a full design history file, a DHF, as you know, John. It is, it does make sense though that you would have to develop a product under design control, which yields a DHF that you would be submitting 
for your submission. So, you know, I kind of asked her and I think, you know, her perspective and, and, and I think something that I, I think makes sense is that, you know, the, the FDA was what they're really looking at at the 510K stage when you're, when you're really ready to get, to get a, mar- a product to market is that you are the same as your predicate, right? So you've demonstrated substantial equivalence that from a technical and safety perspective, you're at least equivalent or if you're not equivalent, if you throw in an, a, an extra, you know, curveball into the mix here from a technological characteristics perspective, that you're at least as safe or more safe than your predicate. So that's the primary focus. I think as long as you demonstrate that in your 510K by using whatever documentation set you'd like to use, that's really the perspective that they're looking at. But again, I I would agree with you that that usually, and it's kind of easier almost for startups if you think about it, to look at 82030 and develop a set of documentation against 82030 even as early as a 510K. I mean, if you think about it, if you're preparing your 510K submission material and you go through everything in 82030 and you say, do we have a design plan? Yes, we do. Do we have design inputs? Yes, we define right. them. Do we have design outputs? Yes. We've done design verification and testing to prove that those tech characteristics are the same and that this thing is safe. We validated the product to make sure that the needs are met, et cetera. All those things that are typical of a DHF, you tell me, John, does that not seem like a pretty easy and practical way to approach a 510K? It seems so obvious to me. And, and I'll carry that story that I mentioned a little bit further uh, the person has asked me to help them put together a design history file for them. And and the beautiful thing, I guess, is he provided the 510K submission. And I've been able to go through that 510K and highlight and circle and point out, okay, mm-hmm. you got all the stuff. It's all here. Yeah. You just didn't capture it in a design history file. So that's what we've got to do now. We've got to extract it from that 510K, put it in you know a format that makes sense in a design history file, but yeah, it's it it totally makes sense. Again, I hate I hate to to make it sound trivial, but it is basic blocking and tackling. I mean, if you just think about it from a logical perspective, you're designing a brand new medical device that you think is the best thing ever. Right. Shouldn't you have the objective evidence, you know, in the form of some sort of documentation and records to be able to demonstrate that you designed it properly, that you've tested it and proven that it's safe? And that you've confirmed that it works the way you want it to. 100% agree. And let's not forget why design controls was implemented in 1997 anyway. I mean, if you think about it, that's not that long ago. You, you're, you're kind of surprised sometimes. I know. I know. When you think of, wow, this is only something that's been around you know, since 97. So let's remember that the reason that it came, up, came to be was because most of the field actions and most of the, you know, the MDRs and the complaints and the bad adverse events that were happening in the field those failures were attributed to poor design. So right. let's just keep the regs out of this for a second. Let's just think about this logically as medical device inventors and engineers and people who want to do good in our industry. We should have control of our design. I mean, I know that's that's really silly and kind of very you know uh, cliche, if you will, but that's literally what design control is. It's showing objectively, like you said, John, that you have considered everything from planning out the design so that you have the right resources and you could talk about a timeline and, and when you're going to get this thing done, right? So the market expects it all the way through through validating the design to make sure that what you actually built was built right and that you built the right product, right? So I think those two things are, are really critical. I think it's, it makes sense to me. So David, I've enjoyed our conversation today and I'm just going to put a bug in your ear. It's something that we should do uh, in, an, in a, an upcoming podcast. You, uh, you recently published an, an article on LinkedIn 
on the topic of research versus development for Vice mm, yeah, yeah. that was a great great read but but uh, how about how about this how about we we uh, schedule a time you and I and we have a conversation about that particular topic for a future podcast that sounds fantastic maybe we'll do it a uh, debate style where you take the r <laughs> i'll take the d and uh I didn't want to, order, order. but yeah, that's fine. No, that would be that would be fun. Yeah, we should definitely do that. So, David, yeah. I'll, I'll let you have uh, you know tell us a little bit more about where people can find you about Medgineering, about my quick consult. Sure, thanks, John. So, um, myquickconsult.com. I really suggest everyone take a look at, it, especially startups. I mean, we really built it for large companies and startups. But if you go to myquickconsult.com, uh, you really can find an on-demand network of experts, medtech experts. These are guys that are ex-FDA that they've been in uh, regulators and under other industries and have really solid medtech credentials that you can basically ask questions to about your medtech problems for a flat rate of $199. So, I mean, it's really a really great way to get some third-party reviews of anything that you're going through, confirm your quality system requirements as we were just speaking about, and really kind of have that uh, network of experts on demand, you know, all online. So, Check out uh, www.myquickconsult.com. And, and if you email me at david at medgineering.com, M-E-D-G-I-N-E-E-R-I-N-G.com, uh, I'd be more than happy to extend a discount service to all of the listeners of this podcast, uh, really to thank John and, and the wonderful things that he's doing uh, with Greenlight.Guru and this podcast. So, oh, David, I appreciate that, that offer. And you can, you can search for David on LinkedIn, last name A-M-O-R, he puts out some some brilliant, easy to follow, great reads on posts and articles that on topics that are fresh and relevant to the medical device industry. So definitely check it out. Be sure to comment. Reach out to David. He's he's very accessible and and willing to help. Hey, this is John Spear. I'm the founder and the VP of Quality and Regulatory for Greenlight.Guru. Greenlight.Guru, we're making some pretty kick-ass software that helps med device companies manage their quality system, their documents and records. Keep track of all their design controls and design history files, and we integrate your design and development activities with a pretty slick ISO 14971 compliant risk management feature set. So check us out, greenline.guru. This has been John Spear and my guest David Amore today on the Global Medical Device Podcast.